Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, February 15. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. Hi, Jan. Hello, Tom. How was your weekend? Very well, thank you. You can't even remember what you did. It mustn't have been that good. Nice. <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> what are we talking about on today's show? Well, one of the winners of the pandemic has been the Australian film industry. So in a moment, we're going to give you a list of all the Hollywood stars in Australia right now. And there are quite a lot of them. We're also going to ask how we can extend the boom beyond COVID. At the moment, you know, with this significant investment from government, we do foresee, you know, this production boom continuing well beyond 2021 into future years. Yeah, forget Hollywood. We're going to talk about Aussie Wood. Oof. Does that have a ring to it? Oh, I can no. get on board. <laughs> Before we do that, though, let's get to the top stories of the day. Well, Australia's long-awaited COVID vaccine rollout is reportedly set to begin one week from now. Now, this is according to the News Corp papers. Yesterday, the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, confirmed that at least 80,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine will arrive in the coming days, with jabs to start not long after that. Uh, we have said that uh, the vaccine rollout uh, would commence in late February. I can confirm that the vaccine rollout is on track to commence with first jabs in late February. The medical regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, is also expected to approve the Oxford AstraZeneca shot in the coming days as well. Yeah, I love how proud um, Greg Hunt sounded, even though we're like almost three months behind other countries. Yeah, I mean, he said, this is the plan and we're still sticking to the plan. And the plan is happening. The plan was to do it late and we're still going to do it late. <laughs> I think um, as in a bid to encourage Australians to get the vaccine, the PM is expected to take it on television, you know, as a way of showing confidence. It's something that leaders around the world have done, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And incidentally, Israel's Prime Minister. Um, I mention him because Israel is the most vaccinated country in the world. So they're doing something right. And the New Zealand travel bubble has burst again. Uh, with three new cases in Auckland, Australian authorities were trying to keep it open, but then late last night, they decided to put the one-way travel bubble on hold for at least 72 hours as of midnight. Yeah, this means that New Zealanders coming to Australia will have to spend a fortnight in hotel quarantine. Now, the reason is that three mystery cases have popped up in Auckland. Um, a mum, a dad and a child have been infected. It's forced the city into a snap three-day lockdown. Um, the source of the infection is unknown, although authorities are currently investigating whether the woman caught it at her job at an airline catering company for the minute food and beverages have been suspended from New Zealand domestic flights. No peanuts for anyone <laughs> flying around New Zealand. That makes sense. I think that might make people in Melbourne feel a bit better than at least Auckland's in a snap lockdown as well. Um, the New Zealand Health Minister, Chris Hipkins, says they're not sure whether it's a mutant strain that's caused this situation there. Whole genome sequencing is being rapidly carried out so that we can learn more about these infections uh, and uh, whether or not they are one of the more transmissible variants that we've seen overseas. And to Victoria, an infectious disease expert says that poor infection control is to blame for Melbourne's latest hotel quarantine outbreaks and not the more contagious mutant strains. So the state government has been saying that it's dealing with the UK variant of the virus in this latest outbreak. And evidence shows that is 30 to 40% more infectious. Yeah, the comments about infection control we're talking about here come from Professor Peter Collignon. Um, he's part of the group that advises our state and federal medical chiefs on infection control. Basically, the sense is here that Dan Andrews, when he announced his lockdown, blamed it on this new highly infectious strain rather than their failures in hotel quarantine and also contact tracing. 
And research from the UK has shown that if someone has the UK strain, they're likely to infect 14 of their close contacts compared to the normal strain, which would be 11. Mm. So it is more infectious, mm. but it's not this enormous game changer. It's, it's still really about the same factors about the way we manage these quarantine facilities and the people that work there. Yeah, I think some of the points that Professor Collignon was making is that security guards are not wearing eye protection, for example, or that there's poor supervision, poor governance, that there is a likelihood the virus could spread to corridors in hotels. Uh, And he says that these are all contributing factors. So right now, the Victorian outbreak is at 16 cases. Uh, The authorities there believe that the Holiday Inn cluster Um, which has led to this third sort of snap lockdown. It started when a COVID-positive resident used a nebulizer, um, which is this medical instrument that sort of administers medication um, with a mask. So Victoria is in the middle of a five-day stage four lockdown, and I think it does raise questions around whether we should be doing hotel quarantine a little bit differently. And the US President Joe Biden has spoken out about Donald Trump's acquittal in the impeachment trial. He said it's a sad chapter in America's history. Yes, after the shortest impeachment trial in history, just five days, seven Republicans voted to convict the president, leading to a vote of 57 to 43. Now, that fell well short of the two-thirds majority required. Yeah, in a statement, Biden said it's a reminder that democracy is fragile and encouraged Americans to defeat lies and heal the soul of the nation. While the Senate minority leader and senior Republican Mitch McConnell, he had this to say after the vote. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. So he got to have it both ways there. He got to condemn Trump, but he didn't vote against him in the trial. Yep on a kind of technicality that he's not a sitting president anymore. Yeah, it was a strong rebuke in some senses, but didn't go far enough, certainly according to the Democrats anyway. I imagine both parties would really want to put this behind them now. It's been hanging over Joe Biden's head. I imagine he's keen to move forward with his plans for his first 100 days in office, which includes unlocking $1.9 trillion, trillion with a T, for a COVID relief package there. Donald Trump said he's got um, more to announce in the coming months. He did in a statement, yeah, that's right. He said our movement has just begun. I think this is a really big question for the Republican Party in terms of how much Donald Trump is a part of their party moving forward. I heard him described by um, one particular journalist as a kingmaker, a Republican kingmaker, so it would be interesting to see how his relationship, if his relationship continues with the Republican Party and in what way. A new poll is warning that cutting JobSeeker will push Australians further into poverty. Yeah, in just over six weeks, uh, the JobSeeker payment is set to go back to $40 a day, which is what it was when it was the old Newstart payment before the pandemic hit. The federal government's been saying they won't let it go back there, but they actually haven't done anything to stop it from going back. Yeah, Anglicare Australia has surveyed frontline relief agencies right across the country. It found that all of them said any reduction would mean an increase in the number of people who need help. So what we see is that we do see people becoming homeless. That's a really big fear. Uh, We see kids not going to school because the parents can't afford to put something in the lunchbox. We see kids not going on school excursions. That was Anglicare CEO Casey Chambers. The federal government is reportedly considering streamlining welfare payments 
for unemployed Australians to see it all paid in one lump sum as a way to move forward on this. Right now, many Australians get a number of payments or subsidies. To me, this is an example where the politicians are out of touch with the lives of ordinary people. You know, you've got Scott Morrison saying, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this. He's been saying this since October last year. But people need to plan their lives to not know how much money they're going to have in six weeks. That's really stressful. They're like, oh, we're going to do it. Yeah, it's fine. It's like, well, you need you need to do it so people can, you know, know what sort of income they're going to have in the future rather yeah. than sit there in uncertainty. All right, in a moment, we're talking Aussie Wood. Open for business. That's the message Australia's film industry is sending Hollywood. Superstar Zac Efron touching down. Chris Hemsworth. Sasha Baron Cohen. Actress Isla Fisher. Natalie Portman. Tom Hanks. Mark Wahlberg is coming down under. The amount of megastars in Australia right now is completely off the hook, isn't it? It's huge. So along with those big names that you just heard, um, Ron Howard, the famous director, has rolled in. Christian Bale is here. Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. Um, also in Sydney filming a fantasy drama with the Mad Max director George Miller. The sets on this film are meant to be amazing, by the way. Several accounts have said that. Since July last year, nine international productions have been given the green light to film in Australia. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge amount, but actually it's two years' worth of productions that Australia has approved in just six months. Yeah, so in today's briefing, Aussie Wood. Is this boom just because of our handling of COVID or is there more to it? And how do we make it last? Yeah. And now, obviously, our handling of COVID is a big part of that. The States is not doing too well at the moment. We're doing considerably better. The other part, though, is our policy. So last year, the federal government added $400 million to an arts program called the Location Incentive. Now, this is a program that aims to attract major film and television productions to Australia, right? Given a massive boost thing is, that funding only covers the next three years. Yeah, and there's also questions about how we get more Australian stories told, more Australian stories produced by a film and TV industry as well. So let's find out what's going on behind the scenes here in the industry with Kate Marks. She is the CEO of Ozfilm, and they are a government-funded organisation that's basically working to attract productions here. So Kate, compared to the boom we saw around the time of The Matrix, Mission Impossible, Superman, how does this current boom compare? Look, it does feel like we're in a similar position that we were back then um, with the level of production coming in. And as you said, we, you know, we do have this very strong reputation and history of productions coming down here. So it's not particularly new, but there's just a, a number of factors that have all combined right now to really drive this level of activity. So can you quantify the size of the current boom compared to those other booms? Because, you know, we hear about the different celebrities popping in. We hear about this production, that production. But to take a a proper snapshot. Um, For example, the Ozfilm office in Los Angeles has been fielding inquiries worth around $2.8 billion since uh, July last year. Wow. Um, So that shows the scale and the level of interest. We also know that since the government introduced the location incentive back in 2018 and they topped that incentive up back in July last year, which is why we've got that increase spike in, I guess, interest from that period. But since 2018, the location incentive has um, uh, secured 19 projects and that totals about $1.47 billion worth of activity um, across those projects. So 
that's pretty impressive for the amount of production that's going on at the moment. Is this the best time ever in production in Australia for film and TV? Look, it's definitely the best time while I've been working in this sector. Um, So I think it's a really positive moment and we're really hoping that as a sector we can capitalise on these opportunities and really use it um, to grow the capacity across the industry. And just checking, you haven't been working in the sector for just six months, have you? You've been in there for a while. (laughs) No. No, no, about 20 years myself now. So yes, sometime, but it's definitely just the level of activity um, does seem unprecedented. So was it just the, the sort of lucky situation we landed in with COVID or was there more to this boom? Is is that location incentive a, a key part of it? Were there Were there smart, quick decisions that we made as the pandemic was unfolding that got us in this situation or were we just the, yeah, the lucky country again? It's definitely, no, it's definitely, you know, it is a range of factors. Um, and I sort of talk about it as being three key factors at the moment. And the first being the strength of our industry and the reputation, the expertise um, in that industry, whether it's in front of the camera or behind the camera, our infrastructure, our studio facilities, our post-production, our visual effects. We just have such a strong reputation as an industry and without that we wouldn't be getting these productions. And then, of course, um, the success we've had in managing COVID and us um, being deemed as a safe place to work definitely has played a, in a role. And then, as you mentioned, the location incentive. So that has been critical um, in us driving this level of activity now. So speaking of locations, it seems like everyone just flies in and goes straight to Chris Hemsworth's house. It's all happening around (laughs) Byron Bay. Is that just the way it it looks because of the media reports around the celebrity spotting or or is there a a massive hotspot up there on the northern rivers of New South Wales and, and the Gold Coast? Look, I think it's probably a combination. There's definitely been quite a lot of activity in terms of actual production uh, up there in the Byron Bay area in the last sort of six months. Um, But the productions are spread across um, the country. We've had uh, obviously significant activity up in Queensland over a number of years, in here in, in Sydney as well, Victoria and um, also South Australia, and we're hoping to see some of these productions go further west as well. And speaking of Chris Hemsworth, he, he seems like a real champion for Australian productions. How, how much of a role do individuals like that play in kind of drawing these Hollywood productions to Australia? Look, I think we're, you know, we're very fortunate to have a number of high-profile, incredibly talented actors that are really uh, keen to support our local industry and bring those productions back. So I I don't think we can underestimate that. Um, You know, we've had a number of Australians come back home because of COVID as well. And I think with them, they're bringing bringing international productions, but they're also looking at opportunities to work on Australian productions. So I think we can't underestimate that importance. So let's talk a little bit about the wider impact of this. How much extra opportunity is it creating for Australian creatives and producers and crew and caterers and all of the people that work in the industry. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that's why government supports uh, these international productions coming in because of that wider impact, both on the industry but also outside the industry on a a range of small businesses that are able to work on this, whether it's, you know, the hardware stores, textiles, um, as you said, caterers and um, produce suppliers. But in terms of the industry itself, it's really um, the scale of these productions and, and the opportunities that they provide. Um, they're just often, not always, but often just so large, which does 
really provide huge opportunities for training, skills development, um, particularly in areas like set design and construction. If you're just thinking of the types of projects that these often are, particularly compared to Australian production. So it's just providing um, new and exciting opportunities for mm. Australians to, to work on these projects. What else should be done so that we actually keep this boom going, that it's not just a short-term thing that's a response to COVID, that we, we build a a strong, sustainable, vibrant film and TV industry here? At the moment, you know, with this significant investment from government, we do foresee, you know, this production boom continuing um, uh, well beyond 2021 into future years. Um, and importantly, these productions as well have had opportunities uh, to partner with Australians creatively. So some of the television that's come in have had Australian directors work on them. They've been developed and produced in partnership with Australian producers. So it's not always just below the line. Um, it is we're now seeing more above the line involvement in some of these productions, which will, again, hopefully flow through to the domestic industry as well. What about Australian stories? Because a lot of these productions are coming from overseas. They're these massive big budget productions, you know, action films, um, thrillers, feature films, you name it. How do we sort of make sure that we're telling Australian stories while also striking a balance between getting the big blockbuster studios here in Australia? Do we need and- do we need quotas sort of in the same way that um, you know television networks have Aussie content quotas should we, should that be extended to streaming services for example Look I think what you know you've what you've said is striking that balance so our focus really is um, on bringing these international productions in but it really is about ensuring that there's a healthy ecosystem and the location incentive um, and the support that's provided through government there is just one of a number of mechanisms that are there to support the industry so there are um, you know, there's the producer offset for Australian projects. There's also the state screen agencies and Screen Australia that do support um, Australian content. So it really is just one piece of that pie and it's not one or the other. What we are trying to do is really um, achieve that healthy and robust industry that is made up of a number of different elements. Is there anything we're doing wrong? Is there anything we should be doing better? Are we doing quarantine right? I mean, people get up in arms when they see Matt Damon can go to quarantine in a chill pad in Byron, but... Uh, are we getting the balance right on on keeping Australians safe, but also getting as many of these um, stars in so we can capitalise on, on the film productions? Look, from all conversations I have, the quarantine system is is working. I think there is a, a genuine understanding and appreciation for what mechanisms we do have in place to keep Australia safe. So, I, you know, many of the 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 cast and crew that are coming through to Australia are going through exactly the same system that any of us would. You know, there is that appreciation and understanding that there's a reason these rules are in place. But between the border force exemptions, which really importantly, the federal government back um, again, sort of mid-2020, added film and TV to the list of critical skills to enable a pathway of entry into Australia. It doesn't obviously change the quarantine requirements, but it does enable um, these productions to get the relevant people that they need in. So I think, you know, the system is working. We work very hard with the state governments and the state screen agencies. I should say they work very hard together to ensure that it is as smooth a process as possible. So that was Kate Marks, CEO of Ozfilm. Jen, I wonder if part of the strategy that might make this boom last would be to really centralise our film industry. At the moment, you know, we've got studios in Docklands, in Melbourne. Yeah, all over the country. Yeah, There's some on the Gold Coast. We have lots of great locations around the country. But when you think about Hollywood, it's great because 
all the people in the industry are in the one place. Yeah. Real centralisation. Logistically, that's a lot easier. It will be hard for the states to decide where the capital is. That's why we came up with Canberra, which is obviously <laughs> terrible. Um, should it be the Gold Coast? You know, it's got big studios already. It's got an international airport. It's got great locations. Byron's not quite big enough. I mean, hey, if you want to plug that, I'm sure Queensland will love you. But <laughs> New South Wales, Victoria, SA, Western Australia, you know, they all want a piece of the pie and they should be allowed to have it as well. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what wars will look like in the future? We'll take a look at whether artificial intelligence is leading us to World War Three. A Podcast One production.